Our scripture reading this afternoon is taken from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6. We'll begin reading at verse 8. 2 Kings 6, at verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None. My lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and there they were inside Samaria. Now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? But he answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away. And they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Thus far. 
Beloved congregation, last week we considered the account of the axe head that floated. That miracle was a miracle that was focused exclusively on some of God's people in a very limited local setting. This afternoon, we turn to an account in the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha, a a miracle that is much broader in scope, not only national, but international in focus. And it proved to be an embarrassment for the army of the king of Syria. And most of all, it proved for them and for us as much the truth that God is always present and that God has all power at his disposal. And may we this afternoon, like the young man in this passage, come to see that. We consider seeing God's presence and power at Dothan. Seeing God's presence and power at Dothan. First, we'll consider foolish blindness. Second, confident vision. And then third, gospel mercies. Foolish blindness. We just read from verse 8 and on how Syria is back at war with Israel. Ben-Hadad II, he warred against Israel and he took counsel with his servants. And it's noteworthy that the name of Naaman is not mentioned. Naaman had recently been cured from leprosy by Elisha and ultimately by God. And it seems that Ben-Hadad doesn't take counsel with Naaman, who was his favorite general. That's most likely because this favorite general wanted nothing to do with a military expedition against the people of Israel. And there already we see Ben-Hadad's foolish blindness. God had just healed his top general. He himself, no doubt, had seen with his own eyes the condition of Naaman's skin. A miracle had happened. Didn't he see that this was a divine miracle done by Israel's God? We would expect Israel to have lifelong immunity from Syrian attack. And that Syria would even defend them. But here he is. Attacking the same nation that just so helped his general. Why? What explains this? Well, the only reasonable answer takes us to the door of the natural man's foolish blindness. Ben-Hadad didn't see the presence of God in that miracle. He was blind to God. He didn't see what he should have seen. But before we denounce Ben-Hadad, do a little bit of reflection for yourself. Have you never failed to acknowledge God in his mercies to you? Or ask it this way, why do you and me go back into sin and commit acts of rebellion and 
We can live past the Lord after He has delivered us. Well, there's not one of us in this room that can answer that question fairly without laying our finger on our foolish blindness. We too are blind by nature to the presence of God. That's true of the believer who after grace commits sin in foolish blindness to the presence of God. And it's true of the unbeliever as Ben-Hadad here. Whenever we sin, it is the God of this world blinding our eyes to God's presence. How patient God is. Like Ben-Hadad, we too can return God's goodness with acts of unthankfulness because He is not always before our face, as the psalmist said the Lord was for him. Our eyes can be distracted and turned away to other things. Things that, that motivate us. Well, what motivated Ben-Hadad? Pride and, and power, ultimately himself. Instead of seeing God, all he can see is himself. Good, my general is back in my military barracks, controlling my army. He's healed great. And he just lives right past God. But that's the root cause of all sin, you know. My, I, me. When Satan tempted Eve, he said, ye shall be as gods. You. It was all about Adam and Eve. You, not God, but you shall be as gods. You and I, too, by nature. It's about me. We're selfish. My feelings, my pleasures, my status, my wealth, my reputation. Sin boils down to me over God. And it's so foolish because we owe God everything. We owe Him our life. We owe Him our allegiance, our submission. But we willfully push these things away. And we so quickly want to serve and satisfy our own sinful thoughts and desires. We can be so self-focused, even after God has shown His grace and delivered us. Well, He's blind to God's presence. But Ben-Hadad was likewise blind to God's power. We read that he makes war plans. They're well laid out. They're tactically well laid out and executed, and his soldiers were well trained. His intelligence about Israel's vulnerabilities are are very good, but as he moves out to ambush Israel uh, with his goal to capture their king, they're not where he expects them to be. Israel has deviated from their expected pattern of movement, and King Joram and his army don't show up. There's nobody to ambush. Although all the intelligence said, this is where the king of Israel will be. So he checks his intelligence. He goes back to the drawing board. He makes a new plan. He sends his men out again. They lie in wait in ambush with his soldiers, and they wait all day, but nobody comes. They were supposed to be here. And so it went. Every time again, he fails. Verse 9 tells us why. The man of God, Elisha, sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you don't pass such a place, for there the Syrians are coming down. They're going to capture you if you go there. And so Elisha's warnings repeatedly saved Joram, not once, nor twice. Many times, it says. C.S. 
see the power of God that Ben-Hadad didn't see. The power of God to reveal the secret thoughts of men. God knows all our thoughts. The Apostle Paul says that he will one day judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He made us. He understands us. He is so great, but Ben-Hadad didn't see that greatness. He was blind to God's power. That's what we're like too when we sin and we go on stubbornly or we get frustrated when things don't go the way that we want them to and we, we might get upset at our circumstances or we blame this person or we blame that event. We forget to look up and see God's power overruling, redirecting us, preventing us, ultimately guiding us because He knows our thoughts. He knows everything about us. So let us live quorum Deo before the face of God. That's the right way to live. And Ben-Hadad didn't have it. See also here how Elisha represents the Word of God. This was an official message from God through his mouthpiece to Joram. He's warning. The Word of God is warning Joram about these ambushes. But it's still that way today, you know. The Word of God also warns you and me about the spiritual ambushes of Satan. God is ahead of Satan. He's way ahead of Satan. He has sown His Word full of warnings for us. So that when, as we read the Scriptures, we can know already where the ambushes of our enemy will be. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. Enter not into the path of the wicked. Go not in the way of evil men. That's the place where the devil will ambush you. He warns against all manner of sin. He warns against drunkenness. Especially in Proverbs. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. He warns against fornication, against adultery. He that committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. See the ambush? Beware that you pass not such a place, for there the devil has come down. Are you listening? Are you reading God's Word? God's warnings for yourself? In the Bible, you have the best intelligence you can get in the spiritual warfare raging in your life. God's giving you all the details of your enemy's movements and He's saying, beware. Well, Ben-Hadad sees none of this and all he could think of was espionage. He calls his men together and he says, which of you is committing treason? Which of you is telling the king of Israel where we're going to be? It's one of you my servants. He doesn't consider the God who has just cured a leprosy or Elisha, his prophet. He's completely blind to God's power. But one of his servants isn't. A servant who saw more than his master in verse 12, he says, oh, King Elisha, the prophet that's in Israel, he tells the king of Israel what you talk about in your bedroom, in your private chamber, in your war room, in the the hidden cellars of your house where you are speaking. 
Elisha tells the king. How does the servant know this? Did he conclude from Naaman's miraculous healing that surely Elisha must be behind this? Maybe. Had he heard some news from the Israelite court to the grapevine? We don't know, but we know this. The servant, he only recognizes Elisha, and he doesn't recognize God. Did you notice that? He actually falls short. And so in a different way, this servant is blind too, because he, he actually insinuates that if, if you can get Elisha gone, all your troubles will be over. And how short-sighted, because he also doesn't see God. And then because of these Syrians conversing together in the council chamber of Ben-Hadad, we see even more foolishness, foolish blindness. Because the king, of Israel, the king of Syria, he's so blind, he doesn't realize that his next orders, orders to kidnap Elisha, are obviously also going to be heard by Elisha. But he doesn't think that far. He's so stubborn. He still thinks that all power stops with him. All he has to do is remove what stands in his way and he will prevail. This is what he says in verse 13. Go and see where he is that I may send and get him. He's so foolish. As if he is the one who has all power. Well, they they trace Elisha to Dothan, 15 kilometers north of Samaria. And then by night, he surrounds the city with horses and chariots and a great army. And he sends his army there. And and now what's going to happen, boys and girls? We've got Elisha and his servant in the city. And all around them are Syrian soldiers. Horses and chariots. Does Elisha have to be afraid? No. He can have confident vision, our second point. As the morning light creeps over the surrounding hills, a man rises early and he looks out over the fields around the city. It's the servant of Elisha, and to his shock, the whole city is surrounded by the Syrians. And he panics. Alas, my master, what shall we do? We're stuck. We can't escape. It's the cry of despair, of hopelessness. We're going to be captives. We're going to get dragged off to Syria. What are we going to do? Maybe you felt like this man. Overwhelmed. Desperate. Closed in on every side. No way of escape. Whatever the circumstance was or is in your life, you grow despondent, you grew discouraged, and you feel or you felt like giving up. Some trial, some hardship, some impossibility. What shall we do? Maybe spiritually you've, you've felt like this when your sins come to bother you. And you know deep down that sin must be dealt with. Maybe your sins bother you. That's a good thing. Let those sins drive you to Christ. But you can feel in those moments spiritually surrounded by enemies and, and God's law speaks against you and your failures and your shortcomings are brought home to you and you feel encircled on every side. What shall I do? 
Or maybe you identify with this servant in that you too look out over the walls of the church into the fields of this world and you see the armies of hell gathering around, closing in on the church. Slowly but steadily, the exceeding wickedness around is encroaching on, is pressuring, it's threatening the church, it's marginalizing God's people, it's trampling God's laws, it's blaspheming God's name. You fear the rise of anti-Christian ideologies in our world. There's such hatred. For all their talk about tolerance, they're so intolerant. What shall we do? Well, verse 16 is the key to what we can do. Elisha sees more than meets the eye. He sees God. He sees God's presence and God's power there at Dothan. He sees by faith that what God, that the God who promised, the God who called, the God who equipped is unable to forsake him. I'm not saying even more than that God won't forsake him. He can't. The Lord says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's true. That's exactly what God says. But he won't because he can't. Because if he would forsake his own people, his words would fall to the ground and he would cease to be who he says he is. And that's impossible. So strong is the bond between God and His people. So sure are the promises that God gives His people. They that are with us are more than they that are with them. If we only saw that more, it would make all the difference. It did for Elisha. He says, fear not. Don't be afraid. It's like he lays his hands on the young man's shoulders and he says, don't don't be afraid. It's going to be fine. He's calming him down. Because they that are with us are more than they that are with them. They're more. They're, They're greater. They're stronger. They're more in number. Because they are man's host, but we have God's host. And if God be for us, who can be against us? He's saying, name the enemy. He's no match for God. Oh, God's people are secure in the hand of God. Christ says it, and neither shall any pluck them out of my Father's hand. Yes, Elisha has this confidence, this, this, this faith that breeds confidence, faith that gives spiritual sight to see the presence and power of God. Elisha here lives out Psalm 46 which we sang. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. For Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Though a host should encamp against me. It's exactly what happened there. My heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. 
And that one word describes Elisha, confidence not in himself but in God. He saw, Lord's Day 1, that without the will of my heavenly Father, not one hair can fall from my head. And so he can say, fear not, don't be afraid. They are but men, we have God. It's a wonderful time of year when we can reflect back on Reformation truth and Reformation times. The great works that God did 505 years ago tomorrow, as Luther nailed those 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, and not long after, he was summoned to meet with the Pope. And people told him, Luther, don't go. You're crazy. Don't go to the Pope. They'll kill you. Oh, said Luther, although there should be as many devils there as there were tiles on the roofs, I know and am certain that our Lord Jesus Christ still lives and rules, and therefore I will not fear 10,000 popes, for he who is with me is greater than he who is with the world. Can you say that? Fear not. For they that are with us are more than they that are with them. Maybe you're thinking as you listen to this and you connect that to the trials you face or the fears you have even about life in this world. You say, well, if I could only see what the servant saw, of course I wouldn't be afraid. But the reality is you don't see those things. And so you may ask, how then can I be so confident? But let's ask a question for a minute. Did Elisha see what the servant saw? Elisha's going to ask the Lord to open the servant's eyes and he's going to see all these horses and chariots of fire round about the city. But did Elisha see that? That physical presence. I don't think so. Elisha saw by faith. You see, he didn't need the vision to be confident of the reality. And here's where our situation comes in. It's the same today. You don't need to see the things which are not seen to have peace and confidence in those things which are not seen. Because God testifies of them. And they are true. Faith, which is what God calls us to live by, faith is defined in Hebrews as the evidence of things not seen. Faith lays hold of what God has revealed as real, though you can't see it. It lays hold of God's word as truth, His promises as truth, and that, that gives confident vision. And you might wonder, how can I get that confident vision? Well, it comes from being near to God. It's the heart of true religion, isn't it? A personal acquaintance with God. 
when you spend time before the face of the Lord, what happens? You begin to have confident vision. You begin to see. You begin to trust. You begin to grasp things that you stop seeing when you don't spend time with God. When you spend time before the face of the Lord, what happens to man? Man gets very small. Very small. And God is big. And Elisha had that closeness. We can see that in the familiar way that he prays to the Lord. The Lord was no stranger to Elisha. Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. He's talking to the Lord like a man talking to his friend. He's so close to God. He spent time with the Lord, and that's what's so important for us, and that's what's often missing when we are so faithless. And when we are so like this servant, we can be despondent. We can be discouraged. We can panic. To commune with God, Spend time with God to take time to be holy. Be off with thy Lord. And so he just asks God to show the servant ultimate reality, and the Lord does. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Between them and the Syrians stood the armies of God. Now the servant sees too that God is near, that God is a shield. The angel of the Lord encamps round about them that fear Him and delivers them, Psalm 34. He sees the power of God, the whole mountain full of horses and chariots, of fire, angels, thousands upon thousands of legions of angels all ready to pounce on the Syrians if God commands. And through this assembled army, It's like God is saying, touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. And they come down to him. Notice God permits them to come. And they come face to face with Elisha. And what does Elisha say? Again, he prays so familiarly to the Lord, smite this people, I pray, with blindness. And the Lord does so. He, he smites them with blindness. And now they could still see things. They could still move around. They saw their horses. They saw their chariots. They saw Elisha. But they didn't recognize Elisha. They didn't recognize where they were anymore. They were, they were blinded to where they were and what was going on. And now Elisha leads these Syrians on a trip they will never forget. They're going to the capital city, there to experience what they didn't expect. The gospel mercies of the God of Israel, our third point. In verse 19, Elisha addresses them. He says, well, this is not the way. You've become lost. Uh, Neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man that you seek. Now, some have said that Elisha was here lying because had they not come to Dothan and were they not looking for Elisha? Well, they were at this time, but ultimately, what was the goal of the king of Syria? 
Their ultimate target was King Joram. Elisha was merely a side mission for the main aim. And so he's, he's telling them, I'll take you to the man that you're actually seeking. Don't worry about me. I can shortcut you right to your final goal. So he leads them away. And they don't realize where they're going. They're following along. They think they're being helped. They get to Samaria. And the prophet prays, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And he does. And the Syrians suddenly realize that this man is Elisha and that we are in the middle of Samaria. And by implication, they realize we are finished. We are in great danger. And they were in great danger. Listen to what the king of Israel says. My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He's, he's ready to pounce. He's ready to command his soldiers to turn Samaria into a bloodbath. But then Elisha says something very Christ-like. Thou shalt not smite them. Would you smite those whom you've taken captive with your sword and your bow? saying, these are my prisoners of war. You're not going to kill them. Set bread and water before these men that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And then notice what the king of Israel does. We read that he prepared great provisions for them. Not just bread and water, but more. He, he actually splurged for these men. And it's a beautiful demonstration here in the Old Testament of what the grace of the gospel looks like. God finds the sinner, a sinner at enmity against him. God leads that sinner to see the alarming state of his soul, lost and undone. Woe is me, those Syrians must have thought. And so the soul, woe is me. When you once see who you are as a sinner before God, woe is me. You see the greatness of God. You see the, the natural state of your soul. You can't stand before this God. The justice of God and His law stands ready saying, shall I smite them? And you maybe even half expect, you expect the Lord, the Lord would be just surely to smite you in His justice. But then something happens. Grace happens. Thou shalt not smite them. The sword of the Lord's justice does not come down on you. But it's not returned to the scabbard either. It comes down on another. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. The shadow of the cross falls upon Samaria that day. God does the same for you and me instead of smiting he sets a feast before us set bread and water before him before her set the conditions of peace before them feed and nourish strengthen and save and amaze set a feast of fat things a feast of wines on the lees a spiritual feast of life in a crucified savior not only sparing mercies not to destroy but superabounding grace giving you of his full fullness and grace for grace forgiveness of your sins the hope of eternal life 
Peace with God. Peace with fellow man. Peace in your heart. Life forever. That is what the grace of God does. And he sent them away, and they went to their master. And among all the tales of war, none were ever so filled with God and his grace and the tales these soldiers told. And they weren't embellishments. God had done great things for them. And they went back to Syria, and what was the message? The God of Israel is completely different than the gods of Syria. The God of, Syria, God of Israel shows mercy even to Syrians. I wonder what Naaman thought when he heard the reports from those soldiers. Soldiers actually under his command as general. He must have nodded his head. He must have thought, their God, yes, our God, is so great. And the fruit is, the last line of our passage, God makes wars to cease. For the time, at least, the raiding parties stopped entering Israel. That's the fruit of the gospel, isn't it? The soul that's at enmity, enmity with God and hates God becomes reconciled and at peace. And there's peace between God and your soul. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he has made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease. He breaks the spear and the bow in sunder. He breaks the rebellious and enmity in the hearts of men. By the blood of Christ applied to their souls. Is this Savior real and precious to you, dear one? Are you trusting in him? If you are, then you have the presence and the power of God at your side. But if not, then you are yet an enemy. And you don't have the abiding presence. You have no defense. You're vulnerable to eternal smiting of His justice. And you need to pray, Lord, open my eyes. Give me to see Thee that I may know the presence and the power of God. That I may experience Thy gospel mercies. For Jesus' sake. Amen.